there is a lot of environmentalism that I feel like goes in a very interesting direction. It goes the route of back to the forest and okay, yeah. <laughs> a very conservative reactionary thing. They, people become homesteaders and, and they are, you know, loading up with tons of guns and waiting. For, so I'm in a weird place because I don't want to embrace the fact that technology is going to solve everything. And I also don't think that everybody's better off uh, just raising chickens and becoming tenant farmers again. I don't think that that's possible. And I don't think it's politically valuable to pursue. So we're in this zone of, of what to do. And I'm trying to find, at least through my work, like uh, try and find like, kind of the emotional space we're in right now surrounding all of that. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joanna Lerka. I'm an echo artist and arts writer. In every episode, I bring worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Hi everyone, I hope you're having a great start of the year. I'm so excited for this new year and the new projects that are coming up. Uh, we already have updates for the, the third season and I will let you know about it uh, in upcoming weeks. And for the rest of the season, we have very interesting artists, very fascinating work. So I'm really looking forward to it. So with me today, uh, we have New York-based abstract painter, so Matt Combs. His paintings and drawings depict a fluidity between the natural environment, the figure and the synthetic. And for me, one of the most fascinating aspects of Matt's practice, and one that you discussed at length during the interview, is his willingness to seek the sublime in augmented nature. So much of the imaginary uses comes from his upbringing in the burned-over district of upstate New York, so a region known for a wave of apocalyptic Christian movements in the early 19th century, and also the birthplace of spiritualism and the American fascination with sciences and spirits. So his paintings are a language that Combus uses to better understand the ghosts of the past and our entitlement to landscape uh, that blurred over from this history. We talked about religion and the contemporary atmosphere, the art world and how it is affected by the wave of environmentalism and also some of his motivations and, and practice and paintings and his relations with uh, galleries and upcoming exhibitions. So this is, was a very unorthodox conversation, so themes that I normally don't talk about that much, but I used to, so it, for me it was really, really a great conversation and I hope you get as engaged as I was when having this conversation with Matt. Let's dive in. So Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Let's just start by you walking us through your artistic philosophy and background. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really liking that there's a podcast in this space. There's not a lot of art podcasts in general, and especially one focused on, you know, environmental ways that art can address certain environmental things is, uh, is good. And I like that it's so broad spectrum that you've had a lot of different types of people. So thank you. Thank you. 
I'm a painter. Um, I'm from upstate New York. I grew up there and then went to Florida for undergrad. Thoughts to Florida right now. They're having a bit of a hurricane. And then I came to Philadelphia for grad school. Um, I've always been a painter. I've done a whole bunch of different types of art, but I always kind of land back at painting. And yeah, so now I'm working in Philadelphia, but a lot of, I, I painted plein air in upstate New York where my mom still lives this summer. And I'm thinking a lot about that region. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about your painting collection? Because you are an abstract artist, but you, you weren't always one, right? No, actually, I was trained in a very traditional way. I was trained by a painter who was you know, an older guy, and he fancied himself in the tradition of the Hudson River School painters, which were 18th century or 19th century painters um, in New England and expanding West. So I got a very good foundational training in painting, and I went to undergrad a bit conservative in my views of what art is. And it took a while to really understand what the purpose of art was and what contemporary art could do. And so I kind of got rid of the figure. I got rid of a lot of the representational painting and I focused on the flatness of the canvas and building out as opposed to building an illusionistic space inward. And now I've kind of come back uh, and I'm a fan of the illusion again. I'm a fan of uh, uh, space that you can kind of enter into as a viewer. So the figure's coming back, the landscape's coming back. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at now. Can you remember when the shift happened from a f being a figurative painter to an abstract one? Uh, a series of really tough crits in undergrad. <laughs> 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 and uh, there was an artist who did a studio visit with me and said, I think you should cut off your arm and experience phantom limb syndrome, uh, which okay. was really interesting. It was uh, an inclination to paint too much or to treat the painting as a precious object. And, and I think uh, the ability to step away and just let things be became the theme of the next few years for me. Okay. Very impactful. Yeah. There's always someone who gives you a critic and just changes everything. It makes you think. And that's a good thing about, about even art critics more than soft ones is that it changes your mentality and makes you grow to where you want to be as an artist that maybe you wouldn't have that you know mentality if you didn't have that critic exactly yeah it's important <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you struggle with the this idea of backyard version of nature rather than a great wilderness explored in painting for centuries uh why these ideas there isn't much wilderness left Uh, everything has been pretty much explored. But the thing that still exists is the uncontrolled. It's the, the fact that there's no wilderness in relation to domesticated humans, but the wilderness is kind of hurricane that's happening in Florida right now, per se. Like the, the, the uncontrolled aspect of the environment, the earth persists. So I think that's a really funny kind of thing, like the relative safety next to the relative unpredictability. And also like thinking about earlier paintings and these great vistas, a lot of the views are owned. You know, you have a private lake house and you own that view and you own that house oh, for that reason. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of have to take 
interaction with the natural world where you can get it. And I find myself in my backyard grilling and gardening a lot. So I can only really enter into a space that I'm familiar with uh, when I'm working or when I'm making paintings. So that's kind of what brought me there. Yeah. So you'd say this idea of being safe, controlled environment and the uncontrolled env environment of nature are two colliding themes within your work. Yeah, I think for a long time, especially in the Romantic period, there's an idea of the landscape as a place for human events to play itself out on. It's the space for human activity. It's the backdrop. But that fourth wall has since been broken and, and the set is now part of the play, as it were. So yep. um, I'm really into... Now I'm trying to find in my paintings these spaces that are, or these, these this imagery that is going back and forth between uh, things bleeding into each other, essentially. So, and and there's a certain imperceptibility to the difference in some parts of my painting. So, like if I paint water, I'm also conscious of the fact that I'm painting chemicals in that water, if, especially if it's a stream or a river or whatever even though it may look like I'm just painting a stream or a creek. So there are, there are these things where they appear, they don't appear. Difference is kind of wandering around. Yeah. So you are inspired by a landscape, by leisure, superstition. So your oil paintings, nature, the natural world as an augmented space. Why do you choose to investigate these themes? So... I think humans are really emotionally adaptable. That's what has made humanity survive for so long is we're very adaptable to whatever we, and we're emotionally adaptable as well. So I'm trying to find ways to kind of map out for myself the ways that I am able to have connection, whether it's real or not, with spaces that might be augmented in some way. So if you imagine the future and we have, night vision sight implanted in our eyes you know like we're gonna have to say that's our experience of nature and how are we going to have any sort of spiritual connection we'll find a way to have a, some sort of spiritual or emotional connection to that because we're so adaptable so i'm trying to find the language of um acceptance and illusion and and uh the ways we can kind of trick ourselves into you know, feeling a certain way about a landscape or about an image. So you say it's it's important for you that the audience, when it, they see your work, they get a different version of what nature is? I think I want to expand the frame of, of what our brains allow us to accept as natural or accept as part of, you know, uh, things that we can't really rid ourselves up so we have to cope with which is also kind of really what i wanted to talk about with you um because i think this is a really important part of the way that we think about landscape and the way that we think about ecology and our own place moving forward so very much more so than my own work uh so this <laughs> uh, I, i'm from the finger lakes region of central new york which is West-ish. It's, it's the meat of the middle of New York State. And 
I recently learned, having grown up there and not known any of this history, except parts of the Revolutionary War, our area was called the Burned Over District. And it was called that because there were a lot of religious apocalyptic movements that came through that region in the early 1800s. And it was a product of a lot of forces, but I think that that really shape the way that we think about our entitlement to landscape. Okay. So the road that I grew up on is on Cayuga Lake, which is where Sullivan went up and down the lakes, burning Haudenosaunee fields and, and doing ex- extraordinary war crimes to the Iroquois people. Haudenosaunee is the, their name for their uh, Native American group. Uh, it's an umbrella term. And Sullivan, during the Revolutionary War, marched up and down the lakes and pushed all the remaining Native Americans to Canada, the ones that could survive, burned all the fields. Um, This place was uh, known for having the most fertile fields. It was almost like, you know, you think of the Fertile Crescent at the dawn of some humanity, you know. Uh, There was reports of ears of corn that were 22 inches long, which is insane. And my uncle is a farmer and I was up there over the summer and we were having a bit of a drought and I went to his uh, house and I saw the field near him was looking good. And I said, your field looks good. We're having a drought. And he said, that's, that's a good field. So, and he said it with this look in his eyes of like almost astonishment himself. Like this field is just special. Uh, So the land is very good. So when settlers came down from New England after the Salem witch trials and, you know, all of that stuff played itself out, people came down from New England into this region and found farmland that was perfect with no Native Americans on it. Um, And they thought themselves uh, divinely blessed by God and entitled to this land. And so they started subsistence farming, pretty much knocking down trees in their front yard and planting around the stumps. There was religion, but there wasn't a lot of organized religion. And the Erie Canal started being built in 1817. And that starts to expand across New York State. So this brings market forces into this space of these subsistence farmers. They don't know how to handle it. There's new people. There's capitalists coming in. Instead of growing food for themselves, there is a push toward selling on a market. All this change was very scary because this living close to the land was part of the Christianity that these people were practicing. So they started to get together and a bunch of really scary end of the world doom and gloom prophets uh, or preachers showed up. And they started saying that, you know, Jesus was coming back soon, which led to William Miller, who said the world is going to end in 1844. And it's kind of funny because that's around the time that the railroad, the Erie Canal is finished in about 1825. And the railroad connecting New York State is finished around 1850. So if we're seeing like full capitalism as market forces as the end of the world, he's putting the day oh, yeah. pretty much right. And so that doesn't happen. 
and a lot of these people sell. There's a lot of the Shakers, you know, the Quakers. This is a big abolitionist movement. There's not a lot of slavery. Um, it, there's a lot of like very progressive views on on slavery happening here. And the Underground Railroad actually ends in this region, uh, the Harriet Tubman home and all that. So these white people uh, decide that the end of the world is coming. It doesn't happen. And they don't know what to do with themselves. And then that shifts into kind of moving the goalposts. And as capitalism increased, they move the goalposts further and further to kind of cope. Yeah. But what persists is the entitlement to this landscape. And what they end up shifting into is a kind of prosperity gospel of you're entitled to this and what you have is shown as God's favor on you. This blended later into the Mormons. Joseph Smith said Jesus actually walked in America, which says that like <laughs> if Jesus personally walked here and gave you this land, then go ahead and just do mountaintop removal and strip mine all of West Virginia. Who cares? Yeah. It's like Jesus said, here, I'll be back before you finish your plate with more. And so we did. And I, that was exported to the rest of the world. Um, this this evangelicalism I've heard evangelical Christianity is is Christianity planted in the soil of modern liberal capitalism, and now it's a global force. You have yourself any connection with religion? I personally, so there were a lot of Seventh Day Adventists, which were the direct next thing that came after Millerism, and. Uh, there were a lot of Seventh-day Adventists around me and I kind of floated around becoming very religious around 16 um, through about 19 years old. And so I felt all these feelings. I felt all these feelings with the land. And so it's, it's so I'm coming at it from a perspective of like having felt that kind of divine spirit in just the sunset, you know, in these beautiful country rural places. And, you know, you have to feel like you're somehow special for experiencing that. So you would say that shaped your vision of nature your vision and connection with nature. Yeah. I think that that really, I think it changed all of our relationship to nature, this history. And I think that my relationship at this point is being kind of distrustful uh, experience because there is a lot of environmentalism that I feel like goes in a very interesting direction. It goes the route of back to the forest and okay, yeah. <laughs> a very conservative reactionary thing. They, people become homesteaders and, and they are, you know, loading up with tons of guns and, waiting for so i'm in a weird place because i don't want to embrace the fact that technology is going to solve everything and i also don't think that everybody's better off uh just raising chickens and becoming tenant farmers again i don't think that that's possible and i don't think it's politically valuable to pursue so we're in this zone of, of what to do and I'm trying to find 
at least through my work, like uh, try and find like kind of the emotional space we're in right now, surrounding all of that. Also, we had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea, who created the sounds that you hear during the conversation. You're gonna hear and listen to her work during this season, so go give her your love and support. I will leave the link in the description so you can find her. Yeah, I think I, I asked you before, but so your art is, it has an emotional connection because you you based most of your art, not only in your, let's say, spiritual connection with nature, but also a lot of theory you told me about that. Can you explain a bit how you reach the end goal of your practice? Well, so I'm not a research-based artist. I kind of fell backwards into diving into this this history with my work if i were doing research based work on this subject i feel like it would be like eating the tea bag instead of letting it steep in the, in the water so i think okay. that there's there are so many other histories and factors that kind of come into the work it, talking about emotion the reason that I stopped painting in kind of a, you'd say like a, a way of Cartesian space, like perspective space and, and the, the painting as the window is because it's obviously a lie. And, but now I'm more interested, I'm so superstitious and I'm so interested in, in kind of fooling the eye and, and, and fooling your sensibilities to, to where there's, there's so much more play in that space for honesty or dishonesty and trust. And I feel like that relates, at least to me, uh, to the moment, because we don't really know what we're in or what we're looking at. So that's kind of why I'm making this work that is kind of almost like bleeding through, like, uh, you know, you see gasoline shimmer on the top of a lake. It's beautiful, but it's deadly. So you, you mentioned before that there is a misunderstanding of what art is. Can you deconstruct that for us? I know that for, you know, my family who are not in any way exposed to contemporary art, there's a misunderstanding. But even myself, like, when I was starting out, like, I, I, I came to learn that in some way it was actually told me that art is unassimilable. I say unassimilatable, but the word is unassimilable. It doesn't neatly fit into the drawer, and you can never really organize the drawer properly to make everything fit. So there's this overflow of feeling and knowledge that needs to go into some sort of a bucket, and I feel like that bucket is fine arts, contemporary art. And then once you have that bucket, you have to realize that there's something about the rest of the system that doesn't allow this to neatly fit into it. And then its relationship to the larger cultural system is where the space of art is. It's like, why doesn't this neatly fit? And so I think that that as a general platform is, is like pretty broad and encompasses anything, but it, it's the space where I think art plays where some other mediums don't like specifically illustration doesn't illustration is a product of the dominant culture. Yeah. 
Okay, so in your view, fine art is an amalgam of knowledge, so culture, politics, environmental theories, history. What do you think of fine art as as an object, nothing more than a painting on a wall? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting thing too because I don't think art changes the world. Certainly, uh, if it did, there's plenty of it and none change. I I'm torn between how you should experience an artwork. I'm a fan of having art in your home and weird art and art that doesn't neatly fit into your decor because I don't think that five minutes with a work of art in a museum is the proper way to see it. I also don't think that the art only being seen by one person and locked away in a room is the right way to experience art either. So I'm torn, but I do think that it's a longer form medium and over years I've come back to works of art that I have that my friends have made in my in my home and it's mean it's meant something different a few years later with the same resonance but a new life and I think that the fact that it still should clues somebody into the fact that it's it's a slow thing you know you don't see a tree grow with your eyes, you know. Okay, it's, it's more like that idea that you plant the seed, but you don't see you don't see the tree. So that's what you think art is, more or less. Uh, yeah. Tell me a thing that you look back to when you feel overwhelmed on when the work is not going as expected. I spent a lot of years with the work not going exactly how I wanted it to. And now I'm in a place where I like what I'm doing finally, sort of. So from that experience, I think I've learned that you just have to kind of keep making stuff and you'll, you'll figure it out in the making. You're not okay. going to, the thing I run into is trying to do, like I, I'll have a new idea and then I try and work it all out in one painting when it should be multiple. And yeah, I think just spread out, spread out the idea and um, keep making the work because, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to hit the way you want it to hit. So do you have a lot of expectations about your work? Yeah, I think I've taken so many left turns in the middle of a painting that I'm not so worried anymore. Um, now I'm more focused on keeping the surface like kind of in the in in the nice quality that I like it right now. But uh, I have no problems just totally changing an idea if the idea isn't working. But there's always the the thing of maybe this should be a different work of art so it's always a gamble of whether to start something new or to change it but if something isn't working just paint it out and keep going <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about your work the great disappointment yeah so this is a painting i'm working on now that's almost finished and i'm calling it that because that is 
that story I told about William Miller when they went to the top of the hill expecting the end of the world in 1844 and it didn't happen, that was kind of derided as the great disappointment, Miller's great disappointment. And I think that I'm, I'm calling the painting a great disappointment, I think, because there's something to the idea that there keeps, this keeps happening, <laughs> all of this end of the world <laughs> fervor. It just keeps happening. And when you're writing the book on history, you're literally ending at the last page. So it's it, the inclination is to think that you're at the end. The hard part is going to be with climate change is that it's not going to be a cataclysmic event. It's not, yeah. um, it's not a nuclear bomb. And we're going to be sitting in the consequences of our actions for a while. It's going to be just a gasoline river that we're you know, floating down in a tube. And that's what the painting is right now I'm working on. It's a painting of my friend and I when we went tubing and fell asleep and almost missed our shuttle uh, to get back to our car. So like, uh, and you know, the river is all just farm runoff and all kinds of nasty things. So I think that that for me is a nice checkpoint in this line of thinking for me to like make this painting and then see how the ideas come after that. Okay, so you connect climate change with the religious end of world mentality. I connect the apathy around it to this uh, evangelical fire and brimstone. Because a lot of people feel like, if you ask them, like, uh, well, what, do you, what about when you're 50? They'll be like, oh, I don't plan on living that long. You know, people feel like something's going to happen, whether it's, you know, either war or climate. And, and, and I don't think that just like Miller, when he sold everything he owned, it did not prepare for the eventuality that it's just going to be, you know, kind of a junky situation for a while. And that's, that's, hard, that's harder to deal with, is living in the consequences of your actions. It's easier to just hit the escape hatch and commit cultural suicide or something, you know, but, but yeah. we're going to be, we're going to be here and it's going to happen to people who are already disadvantaged first. Okay. So, you, so you believe that the mentality that people have now uh, regarding climate change is, is one that it's more of a escape. We are preparing for a catastrophic event and not something that we should deal with slowly for generations. Right. And I think that the solutions that are getting like a lot of the attention and where the money is going are are themselves escapist solutions, you know, uh, terraforming Mars, <laughs> like, you know, or we're going like we're going to space. You know? and, and that is is part of this whole conversation at the end of the world it is like if the world ends, do you want to be on it? That's the question now. So <laughs> basically the presupposition remains that we're in a steady managed decline in some way or another. And the billionaires have decided that the solution is to get off the planet. So yeah, we're, we're really kind of in this like position where we might be, where people might be the left behind. A lot of people are just going to be like left behind. And I think that that's sad, you know, and I think uh, that it's not, a matter of personal recycling your Coke cans and stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's changing a much greater scale. So then you have people who think that technology is going to like carbon capture or something is going to 
solve everything. And that's like me continuing to smoke cigarettes by thinking, well, by the time I get lung cancer, there'll be a cure for it. You know, <laughs> there'll be some new technology that cures it. And I think that that's a little hedonistic, don't you? <laughs> also, if you are an artist and want to be featured on the magazine, go to the page, submit your work on our website and see the required steps. We hope to see your work. So what is the question you think we should be asking? How do you feel about the future? Check in with how you yourself are painting a picture of the future. Is it, is your general idea that we're on a cliff's edge and there is going to be a big event which will determine how you need to act in the future and then have some sort of political engagement or whatever? Or do you think that it's a slow slog and any time for intervention is good? I think you just need to check in with your idea of like the end of the world. Where do you stand? Because if you think that Jesus is coming back and you're saying like, it's okay that the, the world is going to end or things are going badly because Jesus is coming back. That's like, you're like a guy in a movie holding a real gun thinking it's a dream. People around you are like, no, man, that's a real gun. This is real. <laughs> so, yeah, check in with yourself about what you think the end of the world is going to be like because I don't think it's going to be soon. We're still just going to be here. What is, for you, the symbol, the contemporary symbol of God? I don't know. All I can think is, is Joel Osteen and the kind of prosperity gospel that is it's it's either it's either the self it's either a mirror or it's a dollar yeah you because i was trying to understand the idea that you said that jesus coming back and people understanding that they have to think about how they will deal with the end of the world or the idea of the end of the world and you mentioned jesus so what would be the contemporary parallel of that and it, it is money because people will think that someone else will solve the problem scientists or that they have money so they can save their, themselves Even, even now, the, the, they are most affected by climate change or food insecurity is people that don't have that much money. I think there's a huge parallel to kind of the situation in the 1800s America to right now. If you think of like, if, if my analogy holds true that the development of market capitalism as an introduction is introduced into kind of a subsistence farming thing, signaled the end of the world and all this panic. You see, there was a satanic panic that happened in the U.S. and Canada in like the 90s and 80s. And what was the, the push at that point? Globalization. So the idea of, of, of neoliberal capitalism, globally, privatization of everything, outsourcing. So this, this kind of uh, thing gets, gets pushed into this other thing which is the satanic panic and and the and also like just you know a lot of culture war stuff and a lot of the end of the world talk and so christianity in that way finds a way to cope and deal with capitalism but i think they're going to be sorely disappointed in the fact that like capitalism merged like like there was an overlap for maybe 150 years But capitalism will leave Christianity behind, too. They were useful idiots to get this launched. And so, like, the entitlement remains. The, 
the, the and now as it develops more into prosperity gospel, you get rid of a lot of the, you know, the culture war stuff becomes more eccentric and, and it, it, it just makes it apparent that like Christianity almost knows that capitalism is a threat to it, yet it, it you know, bedfellows with it willingly for the time being. And I don't think that that necessarily is going to continue yeah because secular neoliberalism is what is going to colonize mars <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think already religion has been left behind if you think about modern generations or new generations and the religion that you have now is individualism it's not it's not based on god or any higher power is is people so <laughs> it's it's shifted a bit. So I think religion, the true sense sense of religion, it has changed and morphed uh, into individualism right now. Um, and it's two big pillars. So capitalism and individualism. Uh, when people are too focused on themselves or capitalism, they don't they overlook the outside world, the so the environment, the people that need help, the, even your neighbor or being kind to someone else, or they disregard what is. You know the simple things of life, having having people that are close to you, uh, going outside, you know, feeling the wind. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of the you, you mentioned wind, and I've been thinking about wind a lot recently, and I've seen a lot of a lot of artwork, like painting, that is kind of this flatland type of aesthetic, and and I don't see a lot of wind in painting. Uh, very much. There's a lot of like architectural type. There's a lot of plants. There's a lot of like, but it's almost like uh, there's a lot of greenhouse type aesthetic and there's not a lot of wind. There's not a lot of sensation on that level, even in the art. I think, yeah. And I think there's something that happens. I don't know. There's, there's something that happens with art that is similar to a romantic idea experience in nature. You, know, you can, if you can experience something that is like, uncanny i get that sensation from like robert gober there's not enough feeling through these times as much as like speaking about these times so i'm i'm in the push for a more feeling centered art and So you basically would say that the emotion has been taken out of of art? Yeah, and I think, see, this is my conservative painting upbringing creeping back in, but it's almost, uh, again, it's like an imperceptible difference because the, the attitude connected to it is exactly the opposite. But um, I don't think that we're necessarily going to think our way through this time alone. And I think that, um, as you were saying, the, the idea of community, the idea of, of, of pushing people into individualized little units and making them responsible for all the ills of the world in their own heads, you know, it, it, that kind of doesn't bode well for the idea of feeling and emotion because feeling and emotion are so slippery and can be manipulated and stuff. But I think that mm. that is, is also the space of art. It's like, you, you, like the honesty wanders around. I don't think that we would be unhappy living more communally because I think that 
when you don't have as much, but you're not jealous or you're not forced to see someone else with so much, then it's more manageable in a way. So tell me a bit about your relationship with galleries. I mean, I show as much as possible. I had a show right before COVID. It opened March 9th or something uh, in 2020 in Pittsburgh. And COVID shut everything down around March 15th. So that's the last solo show I've done. I've been in a couple of group shows and virtual things. But uh, yeah, I've taken the past almost two years now to just paint, which has been a blessing. And uh, I think I've created at least 50 paintings that I feel like I'm ready to release into the world and see if I can make some stuff happen. But my goal is to just be able to keep painting because the next work is always the one that I think is going to be better than the last. So. Do you have any upcoming shows? Anything people could see? Uh, I'm waiting on some responses from things. I, I just finished a group show with a print in Florida. So nothing in the next month. But I do, I am in an art auction. If you follow me at Toyota's Missing Hubcaps on Instagram, link in my bio, we're doing an auction fundraiser for our friend Philippe. So tons of great art on there. And I encourage you to donate. Um, some great art for a great price. So we are reaching the closing questions that I ask every artist. Uh, I believe the first one you already gave me a bit of an answer there, but I'm going to ask again. So what are your insights into the importance of art as a tool to raise awareness of social and ecological problems? Um, I think it's a tough one. I think that the mission should be, if that is what art is going to try and do, I think the mission should be to try and get people who aren't engaged in contemporary art at all to get engaged in contemporary art. Um, and I think people should encourage their relatives and friends and family to go to shows and, you know, bring people along. I think that um, if art is going to have an impact and make people feel differently, I think more people need to be seeing and listening and engaging. And I don't know. I don't believe that art is going to change the world, but I think that it is an important place to um, kind of gather and check in with how we're feeling and check in with the moment. So can you tell me the most important lesson you have learned over your career? I think there's two. One is um, your best work is probably about five years from now. Always remember that. And wait till the check clears. <laughs> A very wise man told me that. And he's always right. What are the three things you recommend an artist to do for themselves and their careers and why? Rewrite your statement like every month or every time you finish a work and make a plan to have some writing completed every couple of years. I just finished a statement that I feel like I've been working on for five years and it's taken me making more paintings to be able to finish that state. Other than that, just keep making the work because I know artists who have been painting their whole lives and finally you know, are getting their due at 60, 70 years old. So it's when 
you know, the two lines on the graph intersect and, you know, something hits. But I think just if you are committed to your practice, I think that nobody's going to talk you out of making work. So just keep going and yeah, don't go to grad school unless you can get it paid for fully. It's another thing. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Matt. Thank you for this conversation. It was really interesting dealing with these ideas. It's It has been a long time since I have talked about religion and spirituality and stuff like that. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me on. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. This was a wonderful conversation. I hope you got as much as I did from it. So we are at Instagram, at Insight of an Echo Artist. Go have a look. You can reach me directly if you want. Send me a message. I'm totally open to that. You can also make a sustainable donation to the show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash Insights of an Echo Artist. We have different tiers from you to choose from. Also, a good way to support us is by reviewing the show. So thank you. Thank you.